If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Please hear the Word of God. About that time... Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was only seeing a vision. But when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city, or leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him uh, out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have opened and read your word, and now we approach you through the means of grace, uh, of prayer, we ask that you would be with us. We ask that you would be our teacher. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe uh, what uh, we learn in our word in your word. Father, we pray that your word would be applied 
with the power of Your Spirit to our hearts. Father, I pray that we as a congregation would learn to pray earnestly like the early church had learned to pray. Father, I pray that uh, You would uh, use Your Word and accomplish Your purposes this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. If you are already not uh, yet familiar with him, I want to introduce you this morning to Shabazz Bahati. Shabazz Bahati was assassinated in Pakistan earlier this week. He was assassinated on Wednesday to be exact. He was a member of the Prime Minister's Cabinet uh, there in Pakistan, and his job as a Cabinet Minister was to be uh, over the uh, over the minorities, uh, the various minorities in Pakistan. He was very outspoken over the so-called blasphemy laws that are in place uh, because Pakistan is a Muslim country. They have um, these blasphemy laws uh, that if you um, speak um, out for any other faith system other than um, Islam, then you are guilty of blasphemy and can be put to death. This is what these uh, blasphemy laws uh, will do. They allow persecution of non-Muslims in the country of Pakistan. And most of that persecution is directed towards Christians. Uh, And what added fuel to the fire was that uh, Bahati is a Christian. He was very outspoken in his Christian faith and he vowed not to stop speaking for marginalized Christians as well as for other uh, minorities in the country. He said, and I quote, I will, de- I will die to defend their rights. These threats and these warnings cannot change my opinions and principles. In fact, he was so sure that he was going to die that four months ago he made a video uh, and he gave this video to a reporter and he gave instructions that this video was to be played after his assassination. In the video he says, I believe in Jesus Christ who gave his, um, who gave his own life for us. I know what is the meaning of the cross. I am following the way of the cross. I am ready to die for my community and my nation. Would we all agree that Shabazz Bahati was faithful to Jesus Christ? Would we all agree that he gives us an example of what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Would we all agree, furthermore, that Christ was pleased with his steadfast testimony to the gospel in the face of certain persecution? If we are all agreed on these questions then Bahati raises other questions uh, for us that we need to consider as we look at the scripture uh, passage uh, this morning. Because as we read this passage from Acts chapter 12, one of the questions that arises for us is, does does being a Christian immunize us from suffering? 
Or what is the role of prayer in in our being delivered from suffering? And then finally... What is God doing when one person who is faithful to God prays and then continues to suffer while another person who is faithful to God prays and is delivered from suffering? What's God doing when we see God acting in two different ways when it comes to two different faithful Christians Receiving two completely different outcomes in response to prayer when they are suffering. These questions form the outline for the sermon this morning. And so the first point I want to make is is that being a Christian does not immunize us from suffering. This is a stunning passage that we have in front of us. Because this passage, this passage is like a, a, a cup of cold water uh, thrown in the face uh, early in the morning. The church, it seems, as we come to chapter 12, is, is progressing along quite fantastically. Things were bad at the beginning of Acts. The disciples were arrested and they were hauled before the, the Sanhedrin two different times in Acts chapters 4 and 5. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we have the arrest of Stephen, his defense, and then his subsequent execution uh, when he was stoned. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8, a great persecution had broken out against the church so that most of the Christians um, who were not arrested had to uh, flee from Jerusalem and even had to flee out of the, the entire country of Judea altogether. But once they got over these lumpy spots, it seems that the church enjoyed a, a, a relative period of peace and of great expansion. So later in Acts chapter 8, because the, the, the Christians had fled Jerusalem and Judea, they've gone into Samaria, and, and now they are leading Samaritans to Christ, and that's a good thing. Not only that, um, further, further in Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian eunuch is converted to Christ. We come to Acts chapter 9. And Saul, who is later to be known as Paul, was converted on the Damascus Road. And then again in Acts chapter 9 after that, uh, Peter uh, is used by God to heal Aeneas. And then also to raise Dorcas back from the dead. In chapter 10, Cornelius the Gentile becomes a Christian. Uh, Also... Um, And then in chapter 11, the church in Jerusalem uh, agrees that God is indeed spreading the the gospel to the Gentiles. And so they averted what could have been a very very divisive issue that could have split the early church. Instead, they came together, they found agreement uh, there in chapter 11. Also in chapter 11... Um, the gospel then, as we saw last week, goes to the city of Antioch. And there, uh, the gospel takes root. There, many Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. All these wonderful things are happening after the bumpy start. Now the church is rolling. The church was experiencing one victory after another. 
But then we come to chapter 12. And the church gets that cold cup of water thrown directly into their face. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, presumably to put him to death in front of the Jews, uh, and in further ingratiating himself uh, to the Jews. What's happening here? even though in terms of intensity it's much greater than we typically experience. It's really parallel to our own Christian experience. It seems that whenever we're making strides in the Christian faith, we feel like we're growing in our relationship with Christ and we have the joy of the Lord that just cannot be taken away or, or, or diminished at all. Then... What happens? Flammo. Suddenly, uh, something happens. We get sick and we're laid up in bed. Some, or we might lose our jobs. Or we have conflicts with, within our family. Or we have conflicts with friends, with neighbors, with fellow church members. And everything becomes a struggle. All the momentum comes to a complete halt. Our faith suffers, our joy slips, and our lives seem to be lived under dark clouds. Why does God allow this to happen? And before we address this question, let's take a moment to understand the background of the passage. Here's what's happening. King Herod, we see in verse 1. King Herod is not the same King Herod that we read about in the Christmas story. Rather, this King Herod is... He's his grandson. Uh, he's also known as Agrippa I. And because of King Herod the Great, the, the King Herod that we read in the Christmas story, because he was such a cruel man um, and tried to push the Jewish nation towards uh, Greek traditions, he was hated by the Jews. Plus, he was a tyrant. And so when we come to uh, Agrippa I, uh, Herod the Great's grandson, Agrippa I, or as he's called here, Herod, uh, is what he's trying to do is he's trying to overcome some of the hatred of the Jews. Since he's ruling over the Jews, he thinks that it is probably wise for him to improve relations with the Jews. Uh, He did several things that we know from history. Uh, Whereas King Herod had moved the seat of power from Jerusalem to Caesarea, Agrippa uh, now has moved he moved the seat of power back to Jerusalem to uh, please the Jews. He also rebuilt some of the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and had been in disrepair for some time. And then he decided to reinitiate the persecution of Christians. And so that's what we see him doing here in verse 1. 
He killed some of the Christians that had been thrown in jail. He arrested others who were living in Jerusalem. Among those who he arrested and then killed was James, the brother of the Apostle John. This James was one of the twelve disciples. Uh, Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, or sometimes called the sons of thunder? Well, this is the James who was killed. Uh, And when Herod found out just how happy this made the Jews um, when he killed James, then he rounded up uh, some of the other Christians. He rounded up the Apostle Peter. He thinks, well, if they're happy about me killing James... I'll go for the big fish and um, and execute the Apostle Peter as well. So he threw him in jail with the intention of executing him after the Passover festival had ended. There is this idea in the minds of many Christians that God will not let anything bad happen to them. And if something bad happens, well, they must have been unfaithful in some way or another. I believe that this is a symptom of immature faith. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, There's a book called uh, Family-Based Youth Ministries, and the the guy who wrote it is uh, Mark DeVries. And it's a really good book. And um, I think Danita and Jim are reading it right now. But in this book, he lays out the difference between a childhood faith and a mature uh, adult faith. And here's his distinctions. He says, uh, childhood faith says good Christians don't have pain or disappointment. But a mature adult faith says God uses our pain and disappointment to make us better Christians. An immature faith says God helps those who help themselves. A more mature adult faith says God helps those who admit their weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, when we are weak, God's uh, power is perfected in our weakness. Uh, childhood faith says God wants to make us happy. Mature adult faith says God wants to make us into the image of Jesus. God wants to make us holy. Or as we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. He wants us to reflect His character. Childhood faith says faith will always help us explain what God is doing. And the subtext is everything will work out. Mature adult faith says um, God is sovereign even when we have no idea what He is doing. Childhood faith says the closer we get to God, the more perfect we become. Mature adult faith says the closer we get to God, the more aware we become of our own sinfulness. Childhood faith says mature Christians have answers. Mature adult faith says mature Christians can wrestle honestly with tough questions because we trust that God has the answers. An immature faith says good Christians are always strong. 
mature adult faith says our weak, our strength is in, it, in admitting our weakness. And then finally, childhood faith says we go to church because we have friends there, we have great leaders, and we get something out of it. Mature adult faith says we go to church because we belong to the body of Christ. Can you see the distinctions there? And we here in America seem to be especially prone to having these more immature thoughts when it, when it comes to our faith. Now, maybe you're asking the question as I was laying just to... Oh, I shouldn't have even tried it. Just to Pesosi? Setting the two things side by side and contrasting them. When I tried to do that, maybe you're asking the questions, what are we to do as Christians? Are we to simply accept what comes our way and then endure the suffering? Well, look at what the early church did. Look at verses 5 and 6. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. What did the church do in response to suffering? They prayed earnestly. Prayer is our chief means of grace whenever we go through times of suffering. Our ultimate weapon, if you will, to use Paul's language from Ephesians chapter 6. Um, for Our ultimate weapon uh, for succeeding in Christian life is prayer. One person said, and I completely agree with it, that prayer is the work of the Christian life. Now think about it a moment. What could the early church have done to get Peter out of prison? Could they have appealed to the government? Of course not. This is the government who threw him in the jail. Uh, Could they break him out of prison? Of course not. Look how well guarded the prison is. He's bound with two chains. He's got um, sentries all around him. He's in the deepest part of the prison. They could not break him out. All they could do was tell the sovereign God of the universe about the suffering that Peter was enduring. That's all they could do. And God delivered Peter. In fact, we have a whole account of his deliverance in verses 17 through 19. Um, I'm not going to go through that now. I'm simply going to say that God does indeed answer prayer. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God answers prayer? I want to exert a paragraph from a sermon um, on prayer that Terry Johnson, who is the pastor at Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, he preached a sermon on prayer that I've never forgotten. Um, and I was serving there as an intern under his ministry. And so here is a paragraph from this sermon. Terry said, God responds directly to the prayers of his people. When we pray, the universe is affected and history is altered. And then he says this, I know you don't believe this. Oh, yes, I do, you say. 
Oh, no, you don't, I counter. You don't, or you would pray fervently. You'd be continually devoting yourselves to prayer. You wouldn't be devoting five minutes here or there to prayer. We wouldn't have a dozen minute prayer meetings on Tuesday morning. We'd have a hundred. You would, you have not because you ask not. And he quotes uh, James there in James chapter 4. And then he says, I'll say it again. God will never take this church seriously until we devote ourselves to prayer. When we say we want revival, uh, we want to grow, we want to reach the loss, God won't believe us and he won't answer us. I stand very convicted by that paragraph. Do we believe that God responds directly to the prayers of his people when they pray earnestly? There are sparsely attended prayer meetings here at Westminster Presbyterian. We also spend prayer and spend time in prayer in our various small groups and our session meeting uh, and in other uh, meetings that we have. But are we a praying church? I've thought through and I've tried to figure out how can I best apply this? How can I make this as applicational to you as possible? And this is, this is my best attempt. I will meet with any group of members of the church who wants to, to uh, meet weekly for earnest prayer for the church. Martin Murphy, who is up in the balcony, he and I have been meeting for, what, four years or now or more, praying um, for the church. We meet every Tuesday morning around 9.30. If you want to join us there, fine. If you need to meet at another time, that's fine with me too. I'll make a commitment uh, to meet. But I, I just sense that, that we need to grow in our prayer life together. We need to grow into being what we see here in the early church. We need to grow into being a praying church. If God Almighty uses prayer as His way to affect the universe and change history, shouldn't we make it our priority to pray? So I throw that out there um, and am eager uh, for you to respond. Well, this raises a question. What about James? Remember James here in, in verse 2? He, uh, Herod killed James. Well, what happened there? If Peter was delivered and James was not delivered, does that mean that the church didn't pray for James? Of course the church prayed for James. But yet he died. So why did he die? Well... The theological answer is, it was God's will. God could have just as easily delivered James like he delivered Peter, but he chose not to. So what does that tell us about prayer? Well, first of all, it tells us that God is sovereign. It tells us that God always completes His purposes. It tells us that He hears our prayers and He answers, he answers our prayers for good. 
even when we suffer as a result. It tells us that although our prayers affect the universe and our prayers alter history, that God is never brought under our obligation. It tells us that God can use us for His purposes. So what is your attitude toward prayer? All Christians struggle in prayer. Even those who seem to have the gift for prayer, who orient their whole lives towards prayer, who it seems like prayer just is revolve their prayer their lives revolve around their prayer lives. Even for those people, prayer is always a struggle. Prayer is one of the hardest things we do as Christians, but it is also the most important. And so I want us to do whatever we need to do to grow into being a a praying church. Shabazz Bati undoubtedly was a man of prayer. He couldn't have taken a stand without his faith being firmly grounded in God. But what about him? How did God respond to Bahati's prayers? He ended up dead. We cannot say for certain what God is going to do until He does it. And then when God does it, hindsight's twenty twenty. We can look back and say, oh, this is God's will because it happened. But it seems to me that Bahati's death and then his um, presence of mind to make a video to be released after his death so that he could speak from the grave. It seems as if that has started a movement around the world to pray against the Muslim oppression in Pakistan. And it is my prayer and earnest hope that God will use Bahati's death and subsequent prayers of his people around the world to bring a, a, such a revival to Pakistan that it would eventually overcome the oppression of the Muslim, uh, uh, overcome the Muslim oppression. But the question for us is how will God use our earnest prayers? for the ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church as we minister to Brandon and the, the community that surrounds us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, it is all of our earnest prayer now that you would make us into a praying church. That that would be our chief priority. That everything we do as a congregation would be empowered by prayer. Would be bathed in prayer. God, that we would learn the joy of pleading before You earnestly. That we would learn what Paul meant in 1 Thessalonians 4 to, con- to devote ourselves to prayer. In Colossians chapter 4 to, um, to devote ourselves continually to prayer. God, we live in a culture that that um, that seems to overcome us, that seems to to uh, make us so comfortable and give us everything that we perceive we need so easily that we can miss the, the grace of prayer and the necessity of it. 
when you have told us that that is our chief means of grace. We get to bring our prayers and petitions with thanksgiving to Almighty God. Father, it is my prayer this morning. Make us into a praying church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.